I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks for being here. Uh, for those of you that are visiting from out of town over this holiday weekend, thanks for taking a chance and coming to a church that meets at a movie theater. We have cup holders for your convenience. And we are glad that you're here. And we'd love to hear how you heard about Southbridge. So if you take time to fill out the connection card, which you can find attached to your bulletin, please take that filled out card to the first time guest. Yes, we have a gift for you. It's just our way of saying thank you for being here. And this morning we're continuing our series in the book of Acts. We've been at it for a while. We're coming close to the end. And we'll be in Acts chapter 27 today. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there now. We've entitled the series Movement because it's really been a study about the movement of the Holy Spirit and how God is creating and building his church and how that church is advancing, not just from believers that are in a place, solitary place in Jerusalem, but now going around the world. And as we've come to our, through our study, we've recognized that Acts chapter 8 verse 1 or verse 1, chapter 1 verse 8 has really been the key verse. That Christ tells his disciples that you'll be my witnesses to the, to the other parts of the earth. When the Spirit comes and resides within you, you are going to be my witness. And that's what we've seen over and over again. And our church has been greatly encouraged as we've done this study now for, I think it's been about a year and a half. Midway through the book, we see a man named Saul who is radically transformed. His life is transformed. In fact, even his name changes from Saul to Paul. He has an encounter with the Lord and the Lord confronts him and and calls him to himself, and Paul submits his life to him. He believes that Jesus Christ died and rose again. He used to persecute this risen Savior, but now he's surrendered his life to that risen Savior, and he's inviting all who will hear to know salvation that comes from Christ. In fact, that's what our church is about, is to connect people to Jesus for life change. We're not interested in behavior modification, become a good boy or girl, then you can come be a part of Southbridge. No, the Lord will do that work. Place your faith and confidence and trust in the work and person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we've seen in the book of Acts, that now Paul is sharing the gospel wherever he goes. People are saying yes. People from all different backgrounds are saying yes. But with this has come much trouble, and Paul has faced imprisonment several times. He's faced beatings. He was stoned by a crowd at one point. He's been flogged several times. He's been facing a lot of difficulty, usually at the hands of people. But last week, as we saw in Acts chapter 27, the beginning, we see that Paul now is on a journey. He's on a journey from Caesarea to Rome. In fact, he's on his way to go meet Caesar, Nero, to stand before him and give a story, give his story and basically his testimony of Jesus Christ. And the reason why he's doing this is because there's been people that have been against him and oppressing him, and the political rulers don't know what to do with him. So they just keep passing him on to other people. And Paul now is appealed to stand before as his right as a Roman, to stand before Caesar, and he's going to let the gospel Go before Caesar. In fact, he's been given this promise from Jesus Christ himself who visited Paul in prison in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. You're going to go to Rome. But before that point, he's had a lot of several, several encounters. And as we saw last week, he's on this ship with 275 other people. And last week, we were encouraged to remember from Acts chapter 27 that the Lord is a deliverer. The Lord has given Paul a great message of deliverance, even in the midst of the storm. So they're on this trip, they're making their way to Rome, and then they've been encountering this terrible, terrible storm. So it even sees that nature itself, it seems as if nature itself is against Paul. And I've been wondering this week, because it's really the same message three weeks in a row. This one, last week, and next week, when they're basically shipwrecked and marooned on this island. Lord, what do you have for us? We don't want to say what the passage doesn't say. That'd be irresponsible as a pastor. And so I've just been asking the Lord for help. God, what do you want for us in this passage? And thinking about people and thinking about wanting to be a good shepherd for the people of Southbridge, I think God's given a message. And let's just ask him to teach us this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for each person that's here. We believe by faith, God, that you've appointed each person to be here. We thank you for your word. Lord, would you instruct us and teach us? Would your spirit guide and correct us? 
Would you give us something to cling on to, and that is your son, Jesus Christ? And would you give us a word of hope this morning, a word of encouragement? Would you change us? Would you change our minds? Lord, we long to have an encounter with you through your word, so we humbly present ourselves before you in your word, expectantly. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. While you're turning to Acts chapter 27, I was reminded of a book this week that I saw long ago, and it reminded me of this passage. The title of this book is The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. I don't know if you've seen this before. I used to have one that was just geared for men, and I lost it somewhere, and so maybe someday I'll be a man. I have to find that book first. But this book is really interesting. It reminds me of my pa- our passage this morning because there's great tips in this book. The contents here, the first section is great escapes and entrances. How to escape from quicksand, how to break down a door, how to break into a car, how to hotwire a car. This book is responsible for many, never mind. How to ram a car, how to escape from a sinking car, how about the best defense, how to survive a poisonous snake attack, which would be great for next week's passage, by the way. You can go ahead and read ahead, you're allowed, Acts chapter 28. How to fend off a shark. Now let me go to this one. Because if you've been to Southbridge long enough, you may have heard from me that I'm not a big fan of sharks. In fact, I think they came after the fall. After sin entered the world, then sharks were created. They're swimming mouths. I'm sure there's some of you that are shark like defenders and stuff, and we'll just have to agree. I don't know if we can agree to disagree. We are total opposite ends of the spectrum. However, here's a book on how to survive a shark attack. Number one, hit back. Great tip. <laughs> I was thinking about just standing still, swimming still, but now I'll move vigorously. There's the next tip. Make quick, sharp, repeated jabs in the areas of the eyes and gills. I'll go for it. But I'm sure the shark that's going to go for me, I won't be able to reach it. How to avoid attack. Stay in groups. Do not wander too far from shore. Avoid being... I mean, this book would be so much easier. Here's my tip. Don't go in the water. I'm making money right now. Writing books right now. How to avoid getting eaten by a dog. Don't have dogs. Tips. Easy tips. I should be writing books. Lots of stuff in this one. And as I was thinking about this book and thinking about their passage, it really came to my mind that there is a message in here. And I feel like the Spirit has given me a message for today. We know that in our passage, and we'll read it shortly, that Paul and everyone on the ship is going to experience a shipwreck. In fact, it's promised to Paul. And I've been wondering, with, as I hang out with people, and hang out, hang out with people especially from Southbridge, what would it look like for us to experience the shipwrecks that we experience, but then on the other side of them be able to maintain and have faith? So if you're a note taker, if you'd like to write down a title, today's title is How to Survive Shipwrecks with Your Faith Intact. See, we see that this is a record of Paul's shipwreck, but it's not a metaphor. It really happened. But the author is with Paul. The author's name is Luke. It's one of Paul's companions. And we know he's with him because the author keeps saying we and us. It really happened. It's a narrative of the actual events that took place. So you could read and say, okay, what's the takeaway? Uh, Don't get on a boat when it's stormy out. Let's pray. However, it's not just a story about a storm and a shipwreck. Really, what I see is a portrait of faith in the midst of crisis. And we all could use encouragement to keep the faith. In fact, the scriptures over and over again, chiefly written by Paul, about perseverance, to persevere to the end through the storms and shipwrecks that we'll all face. So look at Acts chapter 27, and we're going to overlap from last week. On the screen, we'll start in verse 22, but I'll start in verse 21 here for a second. After the men had gone a long time without food, so that's the crew of the ship, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice, did not sail from Crete, then you would not have spared yourselves, or you would have spilled yourselves from this damage and loss. Verse 22. But now, since we've done it, and we're facing this several days now, 
where we've not seen the sun or stars. Paul says, I urge you to keep your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Like half good news? <laughs> Last night, an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me. And somehow, maybe they didn't see it. Maybe Paul's companions didn't see it. And said, do not be afraid, Paul. Isn't that interesting? Because every time an angel appears, it seems nearly every time, they begin with, don't be afraid. Why? Why? Because we're a people prone to fear. And Paul's in a terrible spot, I think. Can't you just smell the salt water when you're reading this passage? The bobbing back and forth. The angel says, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. (laughs) Good news and tough news. My wonder as I was preparing for this message was this. Why isn't Paul distraught? Why isn't he dismayed and undone? Why isn't he full of anxiety and hopelessness? What the world calls depression, we see in scriptures as hopelessness. And basically what I'm asking is, why isn't Paul like me? He's been through this before. Did you know that? And so much more. He's been shipwrecked other times before. Lost at sea for a day and a night before. Flogged, whipped, stoned by a crowd, ridiculed, imprisoned. And now he's on his way to make this appeal to Nero, but really to share the gospel. Why doesn't he just say, that's it? That's enough. See, wouldn't there be a people that would tell Paul, you are justified in giving up your faith, that God's not seemingly caring, or maybe there's no God at all? Have you ever wondered that before? There's a person I've been praying for several years since moving to North Carolina. He instructs at the University of North Carolina. His name is Bart Ehrman. Someone I've been praying for for years. I've never met him. He's terribly smart. Awfully smart. And Bart is a New Testament scholar. He's most known for having great debates about the reliability of the New Testament. In fact, his most known debates are with Scott, our lead pastors, Scott's mentor, Daniel Wallace, who's the lead, reading, lead, lead Greek scholar in our nation. And of course, when these people gather, all the agnostics, which Bart claims himself to be, and all the Christians or Protestants or Bible believers, when these debates happen, all the Christians think they won, all the agnostics think they won, they got their guy, and all oh, you killed him and you nailed him. So Bart is becoming famous. He's been writing lots of books about unbelief, basically about the unreliability of the New Testament. And there's a book, a couple of his books actually get into his story. The, one is, the first one I read was misquoting Jesus, and the next one is about God's problem. And the book about God's problem is really about basically about the problem of evil. And I think to myself, as Paul's going through us and he keeps going through this stuff, why doesn't he just give up? Because other people do. In fact, here's an excerpt from Bart's book, God's Problem. And I hesitate to read it because I don't want to entertain you, but I'm also desirous to be a good pastor and a good shepherd of the people of Southbridge because I know that many of you fight for your faith and are clinging tightly to the last bit that you have. So he begins with talking about like what he sees as contradictions and errors in the scripture. And there's, he debates this often with people. But then he says, eventually, though, I felt compelled to leave Christianity altogether. The interesting thing is that where it began for him, it began, began for him in high school. He came to know Christ through youth work. And then he went to a school that was much like the school that Scott and I went to. We went to a school called Cedarville University. He went to a school called Moody Bible Institute, which I applied to. So I know this school. 
an evangelical school. Then he went to Wheaton and then Princeton and then involved in student ministry. And as the troubles of the world came upon him and as he saw them and, and he couldn't reconcile his faith claims with the troubles of the world, he concluded in his infinite wisdom that there must be no God or if there is one, it's certainly not the one that I was taught about. And then he writes, so eventually though I felt compelled to leave Christianity altogether, it did not go easily. On the contrary, I left kicking and screaming, wanting desperately to hold on to the faith that I had known since childhood and had come to know know intimately, is the word he uses, from my teenage years onward. Maybe you can identify. But I came to a point where I could no longer believe. It's a very long story. But the short version is this. I realized that I could no longer reconcile the claims of faith with the facts of life. I could no longer explain how there can be a good and all-powerful God actively involved in this world given the state of things. And for many people who inhabit this planet, life is a cesspool of misery and suffering. I wonder if Paul would, would qualify for Bart. I came to the point where I simply could not believe that there is a good and kindly disposed ruler who's in charge of it all. The problem of suffering became for me a problem of faith, he says. I wonder what it would be like for him not to debate Daniel Wallace, but to debate with Paul. How can Paul defend owning his faith in the midst of another shipwreck again, again, again? In fact, in time, he dies for his faith. As martyrs have gone on before him. Whereas our friend in our town here, Bart Ehrman, believes he's justified in giving up that belief. When I read The Problem of Suffering Became for Me the Problem of Faith, when I read books like this that are counter the faith that I hold, what I'd like to do is write in them, not judging, but thinking. It's apologetic opportunity for me. And what I wondered was this. What about the problems of blessing, Bart? How do you justify the problems of blessing? That breath. What is the cause of that gift? How do you justify the problems of love? Have you ever seen someone forgive someone who is forgiving the unforgivable, Bart? How is that possible? Questions that have to be asked. Do you think it'd be important for us as a community of faith for each person to be equipped to be able to answer to someone? How do you justify there being a good God and terrible things in this world? It would be appropriate. It has to begin with us. So I wanted the same for Paul. How does Paul do it? What can we do then to see our faith persevere when we face many kinds of trials, storms, and shipwrecks? If I could fight for your faith, I would. Jesus was clear in saying, and Scott reminded us last week, that in this life you will have trouble. It's one of my favorite promises because it's connected to the phrase, take heart or have courage. The same phrase that Paul uses, take courage. I urge you to take heart. Be of good courage. Have no fear. In this life you're going to have problems. But I've, I've overcome them. I've overcome the problems of the world. And you've got me. Many times God will not remove the trials. Isn't that right? There's many times that God will not remove the storm or stop the shipwreck. The shipwreck of finances or your marriage or wayward children. Sickness. These things come upon us. And Paul knows well that God doesn't always remove what we ask him to remove, the troubles that we see. In fact, he writes to a brand new church he helped start in Corinth. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, so because of the great things that God has told me, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, so to keep me from being um, conceited as a preacher, he's saying, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. 
People debate about what that was. Whatever it was, it sounds terrible. To keep me from exalting myself, he says. Concerning this, then, I implored with the Lord three times that it might be taken away from me. And he has said to me, do you know this one, loved ones? My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. So then Paul writes this in light of Christ's statement or God's statement back to him. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. How is it possible that Paul is willing to not have something removed from him? That's what we have to investigate. Whereas others of us, including Bart, then would say, I feel justified when I look and survey the world in my life. I am justified by my infinite wisdom that I must not have faith. I must relinquish belief. Hopelessness. So what does Paul do in the midst of the trials that keep his faith solid? Simply, he remembers what God said. That's what he says to the Corinthians. God told me that his grace is sufficient for me. And we see this throughout his writings as well. When he discusses troubles, storms, trials, he refers back to God's word. So what has the Lord said? My grace is sufficient. But what does he say here in our text? Verse 24. Look at it again. Verse 24. He's telling the crew why they should take heart and why they should be encouraged. He says, do not be afraid, Paul. The angel says to Paul, you must stand before trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Paul goes back to a message he just heard from the Lord through the angel the day before. It's him banking on God doing what he says he's going to do. Banking on God keeping his promise that, and keeping his heart on the promise giver that gives Paul the faith to encourage others to have faith. Paul counts on God keeping his word. And that is the principle to remember when in, in the storm or in a shipwreck. If you're writing notes, then you can write that down. What's the first principle? What's the tip? What's the survival guide notes? It should be this. Number one, remember God's promises. We've been saying this a lot through the book of Acts because we see that the people in the book of Acts, the brand new believers, the new Christians that are sharing the gospel wherever they go, are calling and counting on God's promises. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11, Christ tells Paul that you're going to go to Rome. You're going to go to Rome. However, God did not promise smooth sailing along the way. So let me, let me say this as tender, tender as I can. For many, there is a belief that God owes people um, safety and easy passage through life. And we make this assumption, I believe, primarily on two beliefs. Why do we make the assumption that God owes us safety? It's primarily on two beliefs that we have. Number one, because, God's sta- because of God's stated and demonstrated love. We assume safety because God loves us. This is why people say phrases, if God loves, then why? The next is equal to it. We make this assumption that God owes us safety and ease of life. Number two, because of God's power and ability. So we believe that if God is capable to move and control and operate all things, and if he loves who he says he loves, then certainly that God would not allow me to endure such a storm or definitely not a shipwreck. But we know from the Gospels that the spoken, the very spoken words of Jesus Christ himself are powerful enough that even the wind and waves obey him, the scriptures say. But when we don't see God doing what we think he's capable of and should be doing according to our great wisdom, we begin to doubt in reverse his capability 
And then progressively we begin to doubt his loving care. And lastly, then we seek to discount God's word. And that's exactly what Bart has done. He says in his books, it's not because of the problems I had with the New Testament and the arrangement of it. It was because of the problems in this world. So then it was, I doubt God's capability, then his love. And now I spend, he spends the rest of his days debating about a book he doesn't believe in. You might as well be debating Harry Potter. Think about all the time and energy to talk with people about dissuading them from belief. But we do the same. We're tempted to do the same. But it looks a little bit differently probably for you and I. For me, the progression looks like this. It's so quick and subtle that it manifests itself in becoming this, like this. I become tempted to make the storm bigger than Christ. All I can see is the bad circumstances, the shipwrecks of life. And I'm tempted to make the power of life's awful circumstances bigger than the power of God. That's a form of doubt then, a form of faithlessness. Have you heard this story before? I'm sure you have. I hope that you have about when Christ walks on water. When, when we read the account of Jesus walking on water, we know that the disciples see him. They're not sure if it's him. And Peter says, Christ, Savior, if that's you, call me to yourself. And Jesus graciously uh, convalescent and said, yes, please come. Come, Peter. And you know what happens? He steps out of the boat and walks. Now, there's only two people that have ever walked in the water. Him and Jesus. I've been to that water before. I put my foot in there and went right through. <laughs> so you can know that one of your pastors is not very faith-filled. Right through. Well, then something happens. Do you remember the rest of the story, loved ones? Peter begins walking toward Christ. Only two people ever have walked on this water. And as he's getting closer, the text tells us, the scriptures tell us, that his eyes started looking at the effect of the wind and the waves were building up and the storm. And then the passage says that he began to sink and then Peter calls out, Lord, save me! And then somehow, in instance, either they're that close or Jesus just arrives that close. I'm not sure how many feet away they were. Jesus grabs Peter and pulls him up because he's capable and because he loves him. And then Jesus says to Peter, do you remember what he says? Can anyone say it out loud? No. You have little faith. Then he says, why did you doubt? Now let's answer for Peter, as if Peter's answer could justify to Christ why he could doubt. What would the answer be, cherished ones? The answer is this, uh, because the waves are huge. Is that justification? This is really probably what happened. This is what happens in your and my life when we make the waves bigger in Christ. We, as good Christians, we want to follow Christ and then a difficulty comes in our life and then we start maximizing the difficulty and treating ourselves as a victim as opposed to looking at the victor. And so the waves start crowding out our image of Christ and all we see is wave. And all we see is the trouble. And we see the effects of the wind and we have a crowd behind us that's looking at us and we become insecure and we begin to sink. How is it possible that Paul can be so level-headed in the midst of such a storm in the inevitable promised shipwreck? The answer is because of the tip. Because he remembers what God has said. He recalls the promise and puts his faith in the promise maker. And you and I are invited to do the same. Let's look at what happens next. Look at verse 27. This first phrase is disheartening, isn't it? On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. Two more weeks, a fortnight, if you will. 
two more weeks, 14 more days, 15 days from the vision, 15 days from the promise. Do you think like doubt would start creeping in from the crew that heard about Paul's God's promise? When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Total darkness for weeks. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, um, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. We need sailors to sail this boat. So the soldiers cut the ropes and held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Hmm. There's trouble here. There's a problem. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have not been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Wow, what a claim. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there was 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When the text says in verse 34 and 33 and 34, and then in verse 22 and 25, that Paul urged them, it means that he encouraged them. He continued to encourage, to exhort them, to beseech them. And he keeps on doing so. He's being mindful of them. And we see that in verse 25, he's encouraging them to be courageous. Paul, the prisoner, mind you, is mindful of the crew, the guards, the soldiers. He's thinking about them. He's encouraging them. Honestly, when I'm facing in trouble, I'm thinking about, well, you tell me. Me. All of me. So here we see another principle. Are you ready to write it down? A principle of seeing our faith survive the shipwreck is this. So we remember first to remember God's promises, and next we remember to practice your faith, practice our faith by ministering to others in the storm. Paul starts practicing and living out his faith. He starts being others-centered in the midst of the storm. Why isn't he just hunkered down into the bottom of the ship with his buddies? Have a prayer meeting in the butt just for yourselves. Yet Paul, the prisoner, is practicing his faith in the midst of this chaos. This is what he does. When he's in prison, he writes to people to encourage them. I'd be wanting to be written to. When he's in prison, he teaches, preaches, encourages. Acting out our faith, your faith, in the midst of the crisis, the storm and shipwreck, is part of the Christian life. Wouldn't it be fair to say that our faith is really no faith at all if it's a well, I'll see if God comes through in this crisis according to the way that I think God should. And then I will live by faith and minister to others if he does. That's, that's not faith thing at all, is it? That's a contract, if then. But the truth is that it's in our weaknesses that we minister to others. 
The temptation for the believer then in the midst of the storm or shipwreck, think about the hardest thing you're going through or have gone through, is you are tempted to turn it on to yourself to justify withholding ministry and ignoring our mission, which is to be a witness for Christ, to ignore our calling because we are in a storm and everyone will understand that we're in a storm. However, there is, there is real ministry to be had in the midst of our pain and difficulty. Ministering out of brokenness and weakness. We boast about our weaknesses so the strength of Christ would be known. And God will use the willing instrument for his glory. Haven't you seen before, like I've seen before, I've seen people give to others out of their poverty. The shipwreck of poverty. In fact, when Amanda, my wife, and I were raising money to be here like missionaries, and Scott and his wife, Shanna, were raising money like missionaries to be here, the reason why we did this is because we didn't want people in Raleigh to think that we were here for their money. And so people that would never be a part of this church locally would give money so that a church could happen here in the Briar Creek area. And I remember when we were doing so, there was people in my mind that I thought I should share with because they should be praying for us, but I never thought they'd partner with us financially because I decided that they couldn't. But I still said something about it. This also people that we talked to that could write a check and take care of Southbridge for all time, it seems. And some of them didn't give as God led them, and people gave that I thought couldn't give out of their poverty. We see the same in scriptures. There's a church that blesses the poor in Jerusalem, even though they were poorer than the poor in Jerusalem. Have you encountered that before? Someone blessing and ministering out of their poverty? We see this Paul as a prisoner encouraging the ship, encouraging all that will hear. He's ministering to them. I've seen folks minister to others after the loss of a loved one or out of pain and difficulty and disaster. And that's what we see Paul doing here. And that's a point to remember. It's in the midst of our storm and shipwreck to be on the mission still. We're not on suspension of the mission. There's ministry to be had. Look at verse 35. Something else happens here. Another insight. Verse 35. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and he began to eat. Uh, why would Paul thank God? Why would you thank God for anything if you're going through something that you think God should be changing? It's amazing, isn't it? I think there's another principle here. Here's another principle. You can write it down. Remember to thank God for what he's provided for you in the storm. Remember to thank God for what he has provided in the storm. Paul wrote one time to a young pastor. And he wrote to me, he said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And I've meditated on this verse often, and I still need to do more of it. <laughs> I need to keep thinking through it and praying over it. How can you find contentment in the midst of the chaos and the storms of life? And the answer is to, through practicing thankfulness and gratefulness for what God has provided. Can you just imagine them in this boat? It's almost like this family-like meal of 276 people, and Paul is like the head of his family now. And the storm is raging still. They're wishing for daylight, and they decide to have a meal together, and he says, okay, we're going to pray. Luke writes it this way. He prayed in front of all of them. How can he be so thankful in the midst of such difficulty? Through practicing thankfulness and gratefulness for what God has provided is where we'll find the contentment that comes with us. And when you do this, I believe that God's spirit will cultivate the character of God in your life, the character of joy. 
This is why James can write, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now that sounds like nonsense, doesn't it? I consider it joy when things are awesome. And yet the faith-filled person considers joy coming upon them and through them by the Spirit when they have the opportunity to suffer for the name of Christ. James writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance is critical to not give up on our faith simply because we've encountered something so difficult. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, James writes, not lacking anything. So let me ask this question. Does anyone here yet consider storms and shipwrecks to be pure joy? Does anyone here consider losing a loved one, experiencing terrible sickness and health problems, losing a job to be pure joy? There's much for us to learn, isn't there? There's room for us to grow. Author Ed Welch writes that Scripture indicates that the life and the age of the Spirit, which is like the book of Acts, and how the Spirit's going to be indwelling within people and working in people to conform to the image of Jesus Christ for the sake of the world, will have the hardest suffering and the greatest joy in that age. And both can be experienced at the same time. And Paul illustrated this as one of the many implications of the gospel. He writes to the church in Corinth again, In all our affliction, I am overwhelmed with joy. How is that possible? He's remembering what God has said. He's ministering to others. And he's thankful to God for what God has provided. Remembering to be thankful to God during the storm will set our joy in Christ. Rather than setting our hearts on the trials, setting our hearts on the storm, and on the difficult, difficult circumstances, we see those become bigger than Christ. And the apostle Peter then charges folks with the same news. He was so pastoral when he writes in his first letter, For a little while you will have to have suffered grief in all kinds of trials. And these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. And here's my favorite part. It's so pastoral. Though you've not seen him, because he has, Peter did. In fact, Jesus says, after Thomas's belief of seeing Christ, he says, you believe because you've seen him, but blessed are they that believe without seeing. Peter knows that he's writing to people that won't see Christ in the same way yet that Peter has seen him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. How is that possible in the midst of the terrible? The answer comes through the tips. Remembering that God has been faithful to his word every time. Remember that we have a mission in the storm. Remember that we can be thankful for what God has provided. And we've seen this over and over again, even today. I don't know if you know this or not, but sometimes our staff gives out office awards. And one of the awards I've received is the YouTube award. It's really precious to me. And the YouTube award is uh, because I love YouTube seeing testimonies and videos and these things. And so it's a video thing on, on the web. And this past week I saw a couple that kind of, for me, just magnified this point of joy in the midst of the storm because of contentment, which comes from thankfulness to God. And I tried to post these to people so they can share them and see them. And one of them was the story of a woman, a young woman who shared her story about how she met her husband, how they fell in love. And that phrase, fell in love, kind of bothers me anyway, like you tripped. But anyway, you fall in love. And then you fall out of love sometimes, somehow. I don't know how that happens. But anyway, people fall in love. They get together. 
they're married, and then in time, they have a child. And then she begins sharing the story of the birth of the child, and the, the child basically was born with great difficulties. And I believe the information was that the child was born with a severe cleft palate and then also cleft eyes, I think is how she said it. One of only 50 cases in the world. And then she begins to describe the difficulty it's been like for her to navigate society with child with such difficulty in people's comments and statements. Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter. You engage these difficulties. But in the background of the video, what she has playing is the song, How Great Is Our God? I want to ask, how is that possible? Because I think people would rather suffer themselves and see their loved ones suffer. And yet this mother is enduring this life with a gift from God, and she has a song in the background, even in the midst of the storm and chaos, How Great Is Our God? How is that possible? I'd like for her and Bart to talk. Because Bart would tell her that you should not be grateful. There is no God, or at least not one that you ascribe to that is great. Then at the end of the video, she turns her son to us so that we may see. And then she's got a glowing smile on her face. How is that possible? Hmm? Another video is like it. There's a story of a family uh, that have adopted several children, most or all of which have different difficulties from their birth. One of which is now a young man uh, who was born in Romania and he was born without arms. And the view at that time in Romania, if you were born that way, was that you were cursed by God. And so then he was neglected by those that should take care of him. And by the time he was one years old, he weighed nine pounds. In time, because of his birth and the way that he was, a family was pursuing someone just like him, in fact, pursuing him. He gets brought into this family, comes to know Christ, and now he has a legacy. In fact, his dad and him go around and sharing the gospel and sharing about the power of adoption. And this boy plays piano with his feet, and he plays a song about how God loves us. Oh, how he loves us. How can that boy play that song? Doesn't he know he was born without arms? Doesn't he know that he should be justified in not having faith because life has been so hard? Yet he turns it on and glorifies in the glory of Christ and the grace of Christ in his life that he might know Christ. And now his life makes a beautiful song, as do his feet. How can they have joy? It begins with, with this thankfulness, which creates a contentment. And then you start ministering to other people, and you do this so because of your banking on the promises of God. Amazing. An attitude of thankfulness creates contentment and then and blesses others around you. So how did Paul's, let's test that, how did Paul's encouragement and thankfulness impact the others in our text? Look at verse 36. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Easy. Easy Bible study. How are they, how, what was the effect of Paul's attitude and Paul's ministry? They were encouraged. Amazing. What happens next? There's been a promised shipwreck. They've been at sea for days and days, several weeks now. They've not even seen daylight. Things are bad, but they're holding on to this one guy's promise who's holding on to God's promise. What happens? Verse 38. Let's start in verse 39. Because of Paul's faith, God picks up the ship and miraculously sets it on the dry ground, and the sun shines, and there's a rainbow descending upon the campfire, and a big feast for every person has had. No. Okay, look at verse 38. The shipwreck happens. The shipwreck happens. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach. The land they don't recognize is Malta, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Decided to run the ship aground if they could. Verse 40. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time, united untied the ropes that held the rudders. 
Then they hoisted the foresail to the winds and made for the beach. But the ship struck the sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck, stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The storm is bad still. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, because if they did and it was found out they escaped, then they would, their own lives would be at stake. Easy plan. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life. Why? And kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. And this way, everyone reached the land in safety. The shipwreck happened. The difficulty happened. Just as the Lord promised. And everyone was spared. The island they don't recognize as Malta. The bay in which they arrived is still called today St. Paul's Bay. You can look it up. Geographically proving again the scriptures. The way that Luke write, writes about the sailors and what they, do, what they did verifies that it was a true story, a true narrative. Rome is where they were heading. Malta, Malta is where they landed. Everyone is safe. And Paul's promise, which was based on God's promise, was fulfilled. We'll have to wait till next week. Um, but God had a work for Paul on Malta before heading to Rome. So there was a purpose in the shipwreck. So we'll steal from next week for a second here. You can write this down. Remember that God has a plan. And this usually doesn't bring comfort to people just to say that, doesn't it? God has a plan and can redeem even the worst shipwrecks we experience. See, it's true in just the last two thoughts here. Most people have the end in mind when it comes to life. We want to get to the goal. We want, to, we want to get to the finish line. We want to get the reward and the result. And the Lord does too. He has the end in mind too. But the Lord also has the path and the journey in mind. He has a plan for the path. He has a plan for that journey. He has a plan for the process. He's into the process, this process, process of molding and making us more into the image of Christ, which then affects the people around us, which they too then are invited to know Christ just as you do. And say yes to Christ because of your faith. So we wish for the ends of things. And if we did so, we'd miss out on the beauty of what God wants to do in the path through pain. What would you say to someone who said, if God is good, and if he loves, and if he's in control, if he's capable, then why does he allow bad things to happen? Many people look for one answer. There's many answers through Scripture, and I want to offer you pastorally, if you ever want to meet one-on-one to talk about such things, I won't debate you into the belief I have, but we can share our hearts. And my approach is this, what do the Scriptures say, and what is the wise thing to do? So I'd love to hang out. We have to have an answer. And our answer usually is demonstrated by how we live. And the way that we live is an opportunity to minister to others in the midst of the storm. How can we survive a shipwreck with our faith intact? Remembering God's promises, remembering to minister to others while we're in the storm, remembering to be thankful for what God has provided, remembering that God has a plan for this process. He has a plan for Paul here in Malta, and we'll see it next week. Last thought. It may come off as trite, but I think there's power in it. You can write it down or just hide it in your heart. Your test will become your testimony. When Paul talks to the people, he's constantly referring back to the hard things he went through, not to be a victim, but then to minister to people that are going through hard things. 
your test in your life, the hard things, the shipwrecks, the terrible that you've experienced becomes your testimony. We see this over and over again with the ministry of celebrate recovery. People have this encounter with the Lord. They aren't who they used to be. They're not who they want to be yet. But the Lord is doing something. And it's the same for you and me, for those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You aren't who you used to be, and you've gone through terrible things, and maybe going through something terrible right now. But that test of your faith will become your testimony. So you can say, look how awesome God is. Today, people are being crucified for their faith, literally. I think it was sixth the other day or eighth the other day. All they had to do, these folks, all they had to do was recant their faith, just so they don't believe. Because why would a loving God allow someone to go through crucifixion? Hmm. And they didn't. Why? I'd love for Bart to be able to debate with a person that's willing to be a martyr. It's not just academic. It's real. And you're invited to know that kind of faith. You're, you're invited to know that kind of grace in the midst of the storm. Your test will become your testimony. And it's either from you about God, as you share with others, or of you about God. Like we see from the martyrs from before, about Stephen. We talk about Stephen. Stephen's not talking about himself. We talk about him, about God's grace in his life, that he willingly died for Christ. To live is, Christ, to, live is to live for Christ in the midst of the storm, and to die, hey, then you get to be with him. Winning either way. Will you pray with me? Lord, for this day, thank you. Thank you for your love and your grace and mercy toward us. Would you give us faith? Give us faith to trust in you in the midst of the storms that we experience and the shipwrecks, the shipwrecks of lost marriage, the shipwrecks of wayward children and of financial loss and ruin. Lord, the shipwreck that we make of, because of our sin, the harm we've done to others, Lord, Lord, would you just give us faith? Would you save us from these things? You are the great deliverer. Lord, would you give us faith to remember and rely on your promises? Would you give us faith to minister to others in the midst of our storm, Lord, and our shipwreck? Lord, would you give us the faith to, to be thankful to you in the midst of our pro- troubles? Lord, would you give us the faith to remember that you've got a plan, not just for the end result, but, Lord, for the process, that you're using all these things that we encounter, the difficulties, for the betterment of our faith, the betterment of our lives, but also for the lives of others as we minister to others by your grace. Lord, I just pray for the people of Southbridge, God, for those that are clinging on to the last shred of faith they have, God, would you encourage them? Would you refresh them? Lord, would you unify us in our faith for the sake of our city? Lord, we pray, Lord, for our nation, God, that you would do a mighty work, that many would know you that we repent of our unbelief, we repent of our doubt, we repent of our, our sin and turn to you and walk in that freedom, to walk in that newness of life, to walk a faith-filled life so that others that would experience your joy in us and be ministered to as well for your glory. We pray these things desperately in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and just close in a time of unified worship.